0: The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Thursday, December fourteenth, two thousand seventeen. From Slate, it's the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and today in Disgraced Men, we have Tavis Smiley. Keep the faith. Take the fifth. We have Morgan Spurlock. Yeah, that guy's so self referential. You know that this was going to happen. Russell Simmons. Oh wow, That's, those are some serious allegations. Do you know that Russell Simmons won the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals Award in 2001? He was the PETA 2011 Person of the Year. I don't know. I think that's enough to convince PETA that the people really are the problem. And it's become niche. There are so many allegations that... Kind of, except for the big ones, you could filter out those that aren't in your direct purview or your particular media silo, like a uh, Benjamin Ginocchio, Genocchio? I don't know how to pronounce his name. I'd hate to dishonor this guy who's the executive director of the Armory show Art Fair. I didn't realize he was disgraced because I was concentrating on the radio people, Garrison Keeler, Leonard Lopate, no word, No no word on why those guys are gone. I'd like to know. I we're at we're in a situation where CNN is down to one Lizza and it's Chris Salizza compared to Ryan Lizza. He's the worst Lizza. So let's hope Chris Salizza skates by and doesn't. He's a C-list Lizza at best, but Ryan Lizza's gone. Uh, or is going, or we don't know. That's today in Disgraced Men. On the show, today the spiel is a sketch. It's something that didn't really happen. It's audio of the Donald Trump Jr. investigation. With the House, by the way, I heard that Donald Trump Jr. also did a nine-hour session with investigators. It was called a marathon session. I quickly did the math, only if you run a 20-minute mile. But first, to an actual elected official, a talk with Virginia House of Delegates designate Chris Hurst. He's 30, he's experienced tragedy, and he's ready to be part of the democratic wave that swept Virginia. As you may have heard, the elections in Virginia were a stunning success for Democrats. And while there are still some recounts going on, the House of Delegates, which once had a huge Republican majority, might reconvene with only the slightest of Republican majorities. One Democrat who unseated a Republican is Chris Hurst. He will be representing Virginia's 12th district, which is in Blackburn, Virginia. Virginia Tech is there, as well as the pristine waters of Wolf Creek and the untouched natural beauty of Paris Mountain. I'm taking that from Chris Hurst, actual election materials. Hello, Chris. Hello, delicate elect. How are you? I wrote that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Chris, you were a journalist, a TV journalist in Roanoke, and some people may be familiar with your story. Terrible, tragic story. Your girlfriend is uh, shot and killed on the air. I remember when that happened. Um, How soon after that did you leave that business, and then when did you decide to run for office?
1: Well, I, I stayed on the te- at the television station for uh, the better part of two years after Allison was killed. Allison Parker and her photographer uh, Adam Ward were both killed. Uh, I tried to go and and fight the good fight, but it, where I was was like a tomb for me at the television station. It's where Allison and I fell in love. It's where they told me that she was dead, and you know, just driving into work every single day became very emotionally painful and knew I needed to make a change, but didn't want to leave Southwest Virginia, didn't want to leave a place that had given me so much strength and love and support. And so I was going to get out of Roanoke and move to a different town and quickly settled on Blacksburg because of the great college vibe that's there, the energy, the lifestyle, the vibe. I loved it. And it was right around that time last fall that Uh, People started getting into my ear thinking that a run for for office might be worthwhile for the people of our district and, and also worthwhile for me. And the more that I thought about it, the more I thought it would be a natural progression taking all that I had learned and documented and reported on as a journalist and being able to directly apply it to public service.
0: During the campaign, I know you talked
1: a lot about your biography. Of course, you had to
0: introduce yourself to the voters and tell them why you ran, and it was very compelling. But how central to your campaign was the issue of gun control?
1: It really wasn't a central issue at all to us. I think we had to have an acknowledgement that the reason why I left the television station and decided to run for office was partly because of what happened to me and what happened to Allison and Adam, but that I was never mad at the gun. I was always trying to seek justice uh, for those that were killed. And we certainly have a lot of work to do in Virginia, a lot of work to do around the country. But we thought that it just wasn't going to be what I hoped to accomplish as a legislator if I was going to be successful. I wanted to focus on rural economic development, creating jobs in a new rural Virginia economy, wanting to expand Medicaid and and going after the, the everyday kitchen table stuff, uh, trying to make sure that People's college bills aren't so high and that every child gets the same educational opportunities no matter where they're born.
0: Yeah, it's a little like uh, a woman who will be your colleague in the House of Delegates, Danica Rome, who is the first openly transgendered woman to be elected to an office, uh, that office in the United States. And people assume she's doing. she ran as a transgender activist, and it's not that she's not, but she basically ran on issues of traffic because that's what her constituents cared about.
1: Yeah. And that's some—that's something that she and I actually kind of commiserated over whenever we've talked has been, we only get identified in, in headlines uh, as one way. She is, you know, transgender candidate Danica Rome, and I'm a you know, boyfriend of woman shot and killed on live television. So um, we were uh, just kind of remarking to ourselves as former reporters, how easy it is for the media just to pick up one persona of someone and just run with that as, as the headline and the lead uh, over and over and over again when she, of course, talked about diversity and equality issues and I talked about reasonable approaches to, to gun legislation, but they were not the hallmarks of our campaign. It wasn't what we wanted votes from voters for, but our stories are, are baked into us because they're our stories. They're who we are. So yeah. we, we're, we weren't going to run away from that. Right. And it, it, you
0: can, through a lot of work and accomplishment, transcend that, right? Shirley Chisholm, first black woman elected to Congress. But if you look at what she accomplished, it was... Phenomenal. And then Barney Frank for years. Okay, he's the first openly gay member of Congress, but also also the author of most of the banking and economic legislation that Democrats authored in the last 20 years.
1: Yeah. So I think that that's really the the mandate now for anybody who ran as kind of a titular figure is to to not. Just go and be so single-minded in your approach as a legislator and as a policymaker. So for me, part of what I want to do is transition from you know, being this show horse that, um, that has had this spotlight and, and take this spotlight that I wish I had a receipt for the purchase price for because I'd yeah. gladly return it and shine it on people that aren't normally seen and go be a workhorse uh, in Richmond for them.
0: So with the proviso, and I heard you loud and clear, you are far from a single-issue candidate on guns, and you blame the gun wielder, not the gun. But days after the Democrats had this victory, the Virginia Citizens Defense League used it as uh, advocacy groups do to solicit donations. Oh, and did war- they? Yeah, <laughs> solicit donations. <laughs> and they said gun control will be coming at us hard and heavy. Mm-hmm. The group said it expects the legislature to push for universal back. Background checks, banning assault weapons, restricting handgun purchases. For however you prioritize those issues, do you predict where your votes will be on all those issues? Can your voters uh, count on you, if the bills are written well, to advocate for, say, universal background checks and a ban on assault weapons?
1: Uh, universal background checks. Yes. Assault weapons ban. I've, I've always told people that uh, if we go and, and ban any type of, you know, uh, semi-automatic long gun, assault weapons, whatever we want to call them, is that really going to accomplish the goal of reducing gun deaths? Because most gun deaths occur with handguns. Uh, most gun deaths are suicide. Uh, Yes, but even if it is true, and it is that long guns don't kill the vast, vast
0: majority of people we're talking about in the single digits, when they do, often a mass shooting is done with, say, an AR-15. Now. Uh, in a weird well no, I mean
1: if, if you look at the fbi 's definition of mass shooting, I think per annum i, I don 't believe that um, semi automatic long guns assault weapons oh that 's true, are, Yes, are the so, as they define it with
0: as they define it with four or more victims, but mm-hmm. my uh, my point is the most horrific, the kind like in Las Vegas and the kind like in Sandy Hook, although as you know, the Virginia tech shooting, one of the worst ever that was not done by a long gun so let 's put that all on the table. It probably won 't decrease most the vast vast majority of killings but still the fact that it could prevent the next slaughter of 50 people not compelling enough for you to vote for an assault weapon ban
1: you know i I, the reports that i have seen have said that if you had an assault weapons ban nationally you'd save about 600 lives per year Mm -hmm. you know that's 600 lives that should still be on this earth you know going to school going to church going to work um but you know, I, I think that it's really important for this specific issue that we really look to find. Where are the ways in which, the other side might actually vote for it instead of just trying to get a a simple majority by having one party be in lockstep and not getting any support from the other party. Universal background checks is something that I think you can get bipartisan support for uh, in Virginia considering the new balance of power, whatever the ultimate shakeout in the ratio turns out to be. Uh, I think looking at instituting one handgun a month laws is something that is on the table again. I think looking at different protective order uh, statutes to try and protect survivors of intimate partner violence, uh, trying to protect those who most are at risk for suicide. All of those things will be discussed and discussed in earnest, and I think can get bipartisan support. So, so let's work on those.
0: When the results of the election came in and were analyzed, and there is some exit polling to back this up, it was viewed as a rebuke to a large extent against Donald Trump. Did you see any of that on the campaign trail?
1: Sure. I I think that that's the element of this blue wave that will really be intangible. Uh, I I don't know a way that you can actually codify how much anti-Trump sentiment helped me in my race, helped others in their races, helped uh, the top of the ticket. Uh, But – I think it got a lot of people in the door. I think it got a lot of people initially interested in state politics in Virginia this year. You know, we had so many people from literally age 8 to 80 who were knocking on doors in our campaign. Uh, And and many of them came in the door uh, because of their desire to want to do something, to turn all of this nervous, frenetic energy into something because of their distaste with what's going on in Washington.
0: Well, that sounds keen and civics-minded, but I also heard there was a petting zoo involved. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that wasn't from us. That was from uh, another group that was trying to get college students at Radford to- uh, But just to, to, just to
0: be, just so listeners understand, they set up a petting zoo and they used the petting zoo- uh, to, try to, and keep...
1: lure, to try and lure college students in. Yeah. I'm not saying that's what I would have done. But, but you know, a you
0: pygmy, g- nothing says vote like a pygmy goat.
1: Or, you know, an alpaca. How can you refuse oh, an alpaca? Uh-huh. Yeah. Or, or a donkey, right? I understand, if I, if not take, there too. I
0: understand not taking money from packs, but from alpacas. I mean, it's totally warranted. Wow. <laughs> just wow.
1: That was oh, good. I just, yeah, was, oh, that was it, great. Uh, yeah, it, uh, I it, could it, tell it by the reaction. <laughs> no, it painfully reminds me of a joke that I would say, so.
0: <laughs> Last thing, this job that you're taking pays, what,
1: $17,000 a year? Seventeen thousand six hundred and forty dollars. Oh my god! And not, a, not a penny more. I got low overhead. I got me and my dog, so uh, I don't have too much money that I need to make, and certainly didn't make a whole lot of money as a as a local news reporter. So you spent
0: a million dollars to get this seventeen thousand dollar a year job. To be fair, your opponent mm-hmm. spent almost a million dollars. That's that's not a good thing, is it?
1: No, it's not a good thing at all. I I think that money in politics is really eroding the discourse that we elect our leaders with. And we spent a lot of money on television commercials, a lot of money on on paid mailers. And, you know, what I do think we need to have in Virginia, which is something that was introduced by Delegate Marcus Simon in Falls Church, and I'm a co patron on is a bill coming up that we'll hear in January that at least prohibits the use of campaign funds for personal use, which is still legal in, in Virginia. You talk about Danica Rome beating her opponent. His name is Bob Marshall. He was paying his mortgage with <sighs> campaign money uh, because he was technically saying that his house was his campaign office. So uh, <laughs> it's ridiculous.
0: Well, if we know the petting zoo gets out the vote and you do have a dog, can you assure me here and now that no amount of campaign funds ever went to the purchase of Yukonuba or other dog food? <laughs>
1: Maybe not Yukanuba, but uh, I can't, can't be so sure about pedigree. I don't know. I'll have to check my receipts.
0: Chris Hurst is the delegate elect for Virginia's
1: 12th. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And now the spiel, today's spiel, is a sketch. We take you inside a House Investigations Committee.
2: As Politico reported on December 7th, 2017, quote, Donald Trump Jr. on Wednesday cited attorney-client privilege to avoid telling lawmakers about a conversation he had with his father, President Donald Trump, after news broke this summer that the younger Trump and top campaign brass had met with Russia-connected individuals in Trump Tower during the 2016 campaign. We're aware that you had a meeting with Russian officials in Trump Tower during the presidential campaign. Following that meeting, you spoke with your father to let him know what had taken place. Can you please tell us what you told him at that time?
0: It wasn't me. Okay, we have it on good authority that you were present.
3: Are you trying to say I plead the First Amendment.
2: Freedom of speech? Mr. Trump, you may speak freely here.
3: In that case, I think we should break for lunch and go to Taco Bell. Sir, we just started this hearing. It is not time for lunch. Uh, Star Trek, then? I, I plead the Star Trek thing. What? I think it's like um, do no harm and stuff. The Hippocratic Oath? No. I have hunted hippos. They can't talk. I mean, the Star Trek thing.
2: Do you know what he's talking about? I think, about? yeah,
0: Gene Roddenberry, who explored new planets. Remember oh, that there okay. was like yeah, a right. rule, the rule? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh, okay, we're hearing you might be referring to the Prime Directive. But that refers to alien planets in a fictional world on a television show and cannot be used to avoid testifying on this panel.
3: I'd like
0: to phone a friend. Write about that friend who you phoned following your
3: meeting. Tell us what was said.
2: Ollie Ollie Oxen Free! That won't work here, Mr. Trump.
3: My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. That would be treason, sir. Jinx, buy me a Coke. No. The power of Christ compels you. No. I invoke my droit du seigneur. Uh, n- no. Wonder twin powers activate form of invisible. No. I claim sanctuary.
2: This is not a church and we are not in the Middle Ages.
3: I plead not guilty. We ask. I plead insanity.
2: Uh, no. Well, actually, that's probably not far off.
3: House rules. Everyone who's not a junior has to chug. No. Double jeopardy. No. Double indemnity. No. Double income. No. In the criminal justice system, sexually based offenses are considered especially heinous. Okay, now that is just law and order SVU.
2: Attorney-client privilege. But you're not an attorney. Yeah, honestly. Okay, sure. That's fine. You got it. The committee will now break for lunch.
3: Yo quiero Taco Bell.
0: And that's it for today's show. We have many credits, but few jokes in the credits. I'll read the credits like this. Mara Quint was the author of the McSweeney's piece. You also heard her as investigator number one. Sam Dingman... He performed in the McSweeney's piece. He was Donald Trump Jr. He didn't really try to do an impression, but he kind of embodied his essence. And he brings that sort of commitment to his own podcast. It's called Family Ghosts. It's a new Panoply podcast. It is a it is a good show. We give thanks to Miles Dornboss and WBEZ for technical assistance, and we also thank Daniel Schrader for uh, listening to the show as he does. Pierre Biennemay is a producer of the Gist, as is Mary Wilson. Steve Licti is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Umprude peru peru and thanks for listening.